Good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. Great to be back with you today. As uh, Aaron said, my name is Rob, and I'm one of our teaching pastors, and I have the pleasure of being down at our Franklin campus most weeks and have really grown to appreciate what God is doing there. Some of you, if you're new, you may not be aware, Fellowship has three locations now, here at Brentwood, which is the original location. Then six years ago this month, the Franklin campus was launched. It's kind of on the south side of Franklin. And uh, then about a little less than six months ago, the Nashville location in the 12th South area of Nashville was launched as well. And happy to report God's doing great things at all three locations, and it's a thrill to be a part of it. But I'm glad to be with you this morning again as we're walking through this Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. I'm actually going to start in Mark 3, and we'll catch up to the passage that Aaron read for us a minute ago. And I'll tell you shortly why we're going to start in Mark 3. But first, I want to give you an illustration. I don't know if you are aware of this, but until a baby is about 12 months, maybe 18 months old, they lack what developmental psychologists call object permanence. Here's what this means. To a baby, the only thing that exists in the universe is what's right in front of its eyes. If it can't see it, if it can't hear it or touch it, it doesn't exist. So in other words, if you're there and you're interacting with that child and then you go in another room, as far as that child knows, you no longer exist. It hasn't developed enough to carry the mental image of you, sort of the mental concept of you, if you're not right in front of it. This is what makes peekaboo so much fun for a baby. Because <laughs> from a baby's perspective, you're there, like it's a face, and then it's some hands. And then it's a face, and then it's some hands. And so, you know, if you could imagine an adult peekaboo is if I had the power to just disappear at the snap of my fingers and then reappear, we could do this all morning and you would be incredibly entertained. How is he doing that? That's what it's like for a baby to play a peekaboo. Now, I was thinking about this idea of object permanence. It's a key milestone in the develop, development of a child. And I thought, I think that's what faith is like. It's the ability for us to have a mental construct of something that we can't see so I was also contemplating on Hebrews chapter 11, definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's object permanence is what faith is. And there's a place in our life, Lord willing, that we're able to develop that. And this morning's text is all about how the disciples were hitting against a barrier in their development that I think has a, a lot of analogy to this idea of object permanence. This idea of, of faith is believing what we can no longer see. There may be some times in your life where you can look back to and say, man, God was really real to me when I was in my 20s or when I was in college or when I first accepted Christ and I was eager or that time in my life when, when God just supernaturally provided or took me through that hard place. But now I'm just kind of coasting. I'm kind of going along and I don't see him. It's like he's in another room. Is he still even there? Is he still interacting with me? Does he still even care? This is exactly the dilemma the disciples were in. And so we find ourselves in this story this morning. Now, I want to say this. I think what this text is ultimately about at the end of the day, it's about the development of the disciples. It's about the school that Jesus has them in to go from, you know, Galilean fishermen who know little about really true spiritual things to the group of men that God would use to eventually change the world. And how does that process happen? And so in light of that, I would I'd like to invite you to reflect on your own process, your own development, your own maturing in the faith, which is part of our mission at Fellowship. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, maturing in the faith, and giving our lives away. 
And so this passage gets to the heart of what will it take for you, for me, to mature in the faith? How do we get past the object permanence part of our development? And so I want to see the trajectory that the disciples have been on. That's why I want to start in Mark chapter 3. So if you're with me in Mark chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 14, and we'll look briefly about where, how they got to where they are in chapter 6. So in verse 14 of Mark 3, it says, He, Jesus, appointed twelve. So that, here's the purpose statement for all this uh, um, discipleship, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, just for a minute, I'll just pause a bit of application even from this text. Have you ever thought about God's purpose in your life and calling you to be with him, calling you to be a disciple of Jesus is twofold, to be with him and to be sent out. And so we start to see these two things um, interact with each other throughout this very intentional developmental process, this discipleship curriculum that Jesus has these 12 men in. So the way it plays out, the beginning of their time with Jesus, he's doing all the teaching, he's doing all the ministry, they're observing, they're asking questions, they're interacting with him, sometimes more privately. We see that play out in Mark 3 and the first part of Mark Four. Now you get to the end of Mark 4 and Jesus is saying, all right, enough classroom, we're now gonna go into the laboratory. We're gonna go into the lab. And so, you know, we, when I was here with you last time, for those of you that were here, we talked about this storm at the end of Mark chapter four. Jesus is still with them, but now he's sleeping in the boat. This is the first storm that these disciples encountered. And so I think he's purposely giving them an opportunity to express their faith, even though he's sort of, he's there, but he's sleeping. And of course, they fail. They fail that first test, right? They're terrified. They wake him up. They say, don't you care about us? What's up with the storm? And he stands up, calms the storm, and he asks them a question. Do you not have faith? You know, where's your faith? That's a lesson, you know, for them. And then Mark chapter five, as you keep kind of walking through, you just flip over to that. Mark chapter five, a lot more, um, a lot more Jesus doing disciples watching, teaching, teaching. Miracles, And you get to chapter six. Now, chapter six is, again, in an opportunity for them to go out and, and sort of try to do something on their own. So you get to the beginning of chapter six and look at verse seven in, in Mark six. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits and then skip down to verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick, sick people and healing them. So remember, going back to their call at the beginning, they're to be with him and they're to be sent out. And now they're being sent out. And actually, it goes pretty well. Their first missionary journey goes pretty well. And they come back to Jesus. They're ready to tell him all these things with excitement of what they taught, what they did. But before they have a chance to, the crowd starts coming around them. And this is where we get into the feeding of the 5,000 last week. And, and Jesus is not going to miss this opportunity to continue to develop his disciples. So even though there's thousands of people, you know, Michael reminded us last week, it was 5,000 men, probably 10,000 plus people total with adults, with uh, women and children included. And so he does this miracle, but how does he do the miracle? He does it through the disciples. Well, what do you mean by that? L look at, at chapter 6, uh, verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Like a bunch of hungry people, we don't have enough food for 10,000. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. Isn't that interesting? Now, the way it plays out, they don't have the power to do that, obviously. So Jesus does the actual miracle, but who distributes the food? 
the disciples. They pass it out. And you know, there's, there's 12 baskets full at the end. What is he teaching them? Not only to rely on his power, but he's saying, listen, here's how our partnership works in ministry together. I did this miracle, you then disseminate this to the people. So in other words, he's showing them, this is how you're empowered by me to go about the work of the ministry that he's training them to do. And so immediately after that, we get to our text. And this is where I want to pick it up. Now, why did I take the time to walk you through Mark 3 to Mark 6? Because I want you to see how intentional Jesus is being with their discipleship journey. He is not letting a single day go to waste in their training. And I wonder if you've ever thought in your own life, could it be that God is being as intentional with you in your growth journey, in your faith journey, in your maturing in the faith? Right? Why wouldn't he be? He doesn't love you any less than these men. Now, our text this morning that Aaron already read for us is a key moment in their development. It's not a good moment for them, but it's a big moment that Christ uses, and I want you to see how this plays out. So I'm gonna walk back through the text. We won't cover every verse. We'll hit most of them, and I'll just give you a bit of a running commentary, and then we'll have some lessons at the end to apply to our lives. Let's start in verse 45. Immediately, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, where he himself was sent, or, and he, while he himself, excuse me, was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, notice a couple of things here. He is again sending them out without him. Notice also, he sends them in the boat to a specific location, knowing, knowing the winds are on the way, the storm is on the way. Right? This is, again, going back to that lab in the, the storm. He's given them another chance, if you will. This time, he's not going to be sleeping in the back of the boat. He's not going to be in the boat. And so, again, he's seeing how they're developing and he's giving them an intentional lesson on, uh, on trusting him and believing in him, trying to get them past this object permanent stage of their faith. Listen, when I'm not with you, I'm still with you, is what he's teaching them. Now, we get down to verse 48, and things begin to get very interesting. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, here's what I love about this stage set up around us. This is like putting you in the exact spot that this happens. I mean, that's actually the Sea of Galilee. And from the perspective that this photo was taken, you're up on a hillside overlooking the sea. This would have been almost exactly what it would have looked like for Jesus. We, we know that the fourth watch would have been the very early morning hours. It was between 3 and 6 a.m. So imagine the sunrise coming up. The, the disciples have been down there on the, in the valley, if you will, on that sea. It's actually a lake. And they've been going at it most of the night, and they haven't gotten very far because of the winds. And Jesus, from his perspective, is watching this. So he comes down from the hill, and he walks on the water, y'all. This is crazy, right? What's even more crazy, if you think about it, is he intends to pass by them. That mysterious phrase at the end of verse 48. Now, why would he intend to pass by them? This is fascinating. There's 
A lot of different interpretations. You know, scholars have said, well, you know, it was only written from their perspective. It looked like he intended to pass by them when really he wasn't intending. But that's not what the text says. The text says Jesus intended to pass by them. I, I think the best explanation to this, and it really makes a lot of sense in the context of Jesus developing these disciples, is in the context of a couple times in the Old Testament where that same phrase is used. There are two times at least in the Old Testament where God passed by someone. The exact same phrase. Different language, but same phrase. The first was with Moses in Exodus 33. You might remember the story Moses is up, he's been with God, he wants to see God, and God says, I can't reveal my full glory to you, but I'm gonna put you in this cleft of the rock up on this mountain, I'm gonna shield you with my hand, and then I'm going to pass by you. Exact same phrase. And then when God got past Moses, he lifted his hand so that Moses could see the back of God's glory. And even the back of God's glory was so brilliant that Moses came down later from the mountain and he was glowing himself. The second time we hear this phrase of God passing by someone is Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is again up on a mountain. He's in a cave and it says the Lord wanted to pass by Elijah. And here's what it felt like from Elijah's perspective in the cave. First, there was a terribly strong wind, so strong that it said that some of the rocks were breaking apart. Secondly, there was an earthquake. Third, there was a great fire. But then the text says the Lord wasn't in any of those things. Fourthly, there was a quiet whisper of wind. And so Elijah carefully goes to the mouth of the cave and God speaks to him. Text said the Lord passed by, revealing his glory, first to Moses, then to Elijah. I think what Jesus is intending to do is to reveal the glory of him as the second person of the Trinity to the disciples by walking on the water and showing them his power, reassuring them that he has seen them, that he is with them, that he is powerful, that he is God, that he is in control. That's his intention. Problem is, the disciples miss it. Let's see what their reaction is. This is picking it up in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Ironic, isn't it? What was meant to reassure them terrified them. So I was thinking about this and I, I thought about the, the baby. Let's go back to say a nine-month-old baby and, and when, when, when you, if you're the parent or you're you know, someone the baby is familiar with in the family, when you're with that, that child, maybe holding that baby girl, she's calm. You set her down, you leave the room. From the baby's perspective, you're, you're out of her world. You cease to exist. Let's say she starts crying in distress. Let's say you come back in the room. What should happen? The baby, when she sees you, should calm down. When you pick that baby up, she should calm down. This is not what happened with the disciples. Now, the only way that that baby, a human baby, is not going to calm down, you know, would be if they don't recognize you. Let's say it's a stranger that walks in the room. Or, or maybe, maybe men like, you know, you, you've, you've shaved off your beard in between the time you saw her last. Or you now have on sunglasses or a hat. There's, there's this moment of fear. It's like, who is this? I don't recognize this person. That's what's happening to the disciples. Do you catch the irony? They're not recognizing Jesus in his glory. 
They've seen the miracles, but it's not computing in their head yet. Right? So all these things they've observed, they've even been a part of, they literally were a part of the feeding of the 5,000 several hours before, but they've forgotten. You see, they don't have object permanence yet in their faith. Now, Jesus' response is so gracious. I I would have been frustrated with them big time. But instead, listen to what he does. He, He simply says, do not be afraid, which again fits perfectly the Old Testament imagery context of God reassuring Israel when he does show him his glory. Hey, don't be afraid. You hear that over and over again in the scripture. And then secondly, this very interesting phrase that Jesus says, it is I. Now, on the one hand, you might think he's just identifying himself, but I actually think it's deeper than that because it matches, again, to this whole context of the story of Moses when God in Moses 3.14, or in Exodus 3.14, you ever heard of the book of Moses? (laughs) Now you have. (laughs) Exodus 3.14, God reveals his name as I am. Yahweh, I am who I am. And now Jesus, his disciples, after intending to pass by them and reveal his glory, says, it is I. Right? Translation, Yahweh is here. It is I. I am. Now we get to 51 and 52, and Mark, thank goodness, right, the narrator here is going to give us some insight into why these men were having trouble. They thought it was a ghost instead of the man that just did this incredible miracle. Like, if he can multiply loaves, can he walk on the water? Like, why was their first assumption a ghost? Here's what Mark says. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. That's the key verse in our passage. Why is it the key verse in our passage? Because it's giving us the why behind the what. It's it's diagnosing where these men are in their faith development. Their hearts were hard. Now, I want to spend about eight minutes or so digging into this idea of a hard heart because it's going to unlock this passage for us applicationally. All right? So, couple things you need to know. First of all, in the Greek, the heart is cardia. So we get cardio from it. So it's a pretty good correspondence. But second of all, it is used in Greek the same way we use heart in English. Don't we use heart often this way? Man, that letter I got from you really touched my heart. Now, you know, what does that mean if you're only thinking from a physiological standpoint? Or, man, in, in that movie, my heart was just ripped open as I was identifying with that struggle or that relationship or whatever it is. So in English, just like in Greek, heart means a lot more than the vessel that pumps blood, does it not? It, in fact, in Greek, it carries the idea of your heart was the center of your mental, emotional, and spiritual life. When you see heart in scripture, almost exclusively, it's not talking about the, the blood vessel it, it, it's, or the, the, the organ. It's talking about the inner person. It's who you are on your inside. And it's not just emotionalism. In English, heart is a little bit more emotion-tinged. In Greek, it carries the emotion, but it also carries your understanding, your mental idea. So it's just all of who you are, kind of a combination of what we would say your, your mind and your heart put together. In Greek is this idea. Now, a hardened heart is a common image throughout Scripture, right? You've probably heard it before. 
And we even use this same idiom in English sometimes. But in the Old and New Testaments, there are many examples of men and women whose hearts were hard. And so we learn over time that what this essentially means is God is saying, listen, your insides, your mental, emotional, spiritual lives are meant to be pliable. They're meant to be moldable. They're meant to be soft. And there can come through your own willfulness or certain choices or even sometimes in scripture, God hardening someone's heart. He did that with Pharaoh, for example, in Egypt. There can come times when your insides are no longer able to hear and receive what God is trying to teach you or tell you or ask you to do. You've hardened your heart. You have a hard heart and that is not a good thing anywhere in scripture. Now, because this idea is so important, I want, I want to drill down in two more ways. One is I want to point you to another passage in the Gospel of Mark that talks about hardened hearts. And two, I want to give you a visual illustration about a hardened heart. Now, before I do that, I'll just say this. This is not the first time the, the idea of hardened heart has come in the Gospel of Mark, but it is the first time it's been applied to the disciples. Earlier in the Gospel, it was applied to the enemies of Christ, the religious leaders plotting to kill him. Now it's applied to the disciples. And so you're reading through this gospel, there's a little bit of a dark turn here. You mean to tell me that these 12 men that Jesus has now been spending 24-7 time with for at this point probably almost two years, their hearts are also hardened? What hope is there for the mission of Christ? Now, when we say hard and hard, again, I kind of referenced this already, but we're not talking about just emotionalism. So we're not talking about, well, do you cry easily at movies or not? You know, that's not an indication of whether your heart is hard or soft spiritually. So let me point you to a passage in Mark 8. In fact, I invite you to flip over a page or two, get to Mark 8, we'll pick it up in 17. Let me set the context for what happens. Jesus, in a couple chapters from now, and we'll get to this, and you know, it'll either be Lloyd or Michael or somebody teaching it, we'll get to it. But he does another feeding of the thousands miracle. This time, instead of 5,000, it's 4,000. But he again multiplies loaves of bread. Something incredibly ironic happens immediately after the second miracle of the feeding of this time 4,000. The disciples and Jesus get in a boat again to go across the other side and they realize that they don't have enough bread with them for the journey. <laughs> the text says they only brought one loaf. Not enough for 13 men. They start fretting over this. Now, do you, do you like, you see the irony in this, right? This is comical. They just saw him feed 5,000 with a few loaves, feed 4,000 with a few loaves, and now they're worried that they didn't bring enough bread for the journey, right? It's this moment in the text where you just want to go, until you realize that that's us too. How many times in my life have I seen God do something wonderful? And then a month later, a week later, sometimes the same day, I get some bad news, something doesn't go my way, and it's like, well, maybe that wasn't God doing that other thing. Maybe that was just lucky because I don't know that God really is real to me. This is what's happening with the disciples. Now, Jesus picks up on this, arguing about the, the, the bread. And in verse 17, it says, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand do you have a hardened heart? There it is again. Now, what's helpful about this passage and the reason I wanted to read it to you is Jesus goes on to then sort of define for them what a hardened heart looks like. Look at 18. Having eyes do you not see? 
Having ears, do you not hear? He's quoting Isaiah 6 there. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. Verse 21. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand What Jesus is essentially saying here is he's saying, look, for you to grow in your faith past this barrier of object permanence where you forget that I'm good when I'm not actively doing a miracle, you need more than just knowledge. You need receptivity. You need eyes that see. You need ears that hear. You need to come to understanding. In other words, you need a softened heart. This should have reminded the disciples and it should remind us of Jesus' parable of the soils back earlier in Mark, which we've already covered. You remember? He says the kingdom of God is like a farmer that goes out to plant seed and some of the seed falls on the road. The road is hard. It's compact down by all the traveling. And because the seed falls on the road, it cannot penetrate through the soil and take root. And he contrasts that with the good soil, the fourth soil at the end of this parable. The seed that falls on the good soil goes down deep. The difference between the first soil and the fourth soil is the depth, the ability to penetrate past the hardness. The first soil is the hard heart. Jesus is now telling the disciples, this is your condition and you're going to have to grow past the object permanent stage in order for your heart to be softened. So you might think of it this way, faith, men and women, equals knowledge plus receptivity. That's why some of the smartest men, women in the world can read the Bible, they can study all these things, they can be experts in some of the doctrine and theology that's contained in the Bible and not believe a lick of it. They're not receptive. They don't have a softened heart. Now, this is where this visual illustration comes in. I just want you, before I do this, I want you to see it. It's not just those people that have hardened hearts. If it can be true of the disciples spending time with Jesus, seeing his miracles, could it be possible that anybody in this room doesn't have at least a part of our heart that's hardened? I think not. Not true for this man, I'll tell you that. Now, here's the illustration. I have here a big rock, a stone, and I have in this picture some water. Now, you know what's gonna happen when I pour the water on the rock, right? But I want you to see it. When I, when I pour the water on the rock, it's not soaked in, it just runs over the side and falls into this basin below. Why is that, okay? Obviously, the rock is not porous. It's hard, it's stiff, it's weighty, yes, it's impressive, yes, but it cannot change, it cannot be, be, be uh, absorbed, it's not receptive to the water, and so it just all comes off. Now, what you see before you is a wet rock, and an hour from now, it'll be dry again. It's not useful as it relates to transporting this water or or, or being a a vessel of water. A rock is not meant for that. Now, I also have a sponge. When you pour water on a sponge, it doesn't just fall off. It gets soaked in. 
the sponge absorbs the water. And it'll just keep soaking until it reaches the point of saturation. Why? It's not as impressive, but it's malleable. It's flexible. It has holes in it. It's porous. It can receive. This is the soft heart. Now, what I think's helpful about this illustration is a rock is useful for some things. It's useful for pounding something in or exerting its way through sheer force. A rock cannot be a vessel of water, but a sponge, a malleable soft sponge. I could now take this soaked sponge and I could go, and, and, and this could be a vessel of, of refreshment to some dry place or a person who needs water. I could use this sponge to cleanse, to, to sort of take the, the cleaning power of the water and, and, and provide that for an area that's dirty or unclean. I can take this sponge and it can be wrung out. And so the water can go other places, you see. This is now a vessel. This soft sponge is the image of the softened heart that Jesus knows must develop in these men if they're gonna be used as vessels of the gospel and ultimately change the world through them. And at this point in the narrative, they weren't past this stage of their development. Now, here's the really obvious application for us, y'all. I fear that I'm more like that rock than a sponge. And I fear that you, that we, are more like that rock than the sponge. We come on Sunday mornings, you know, some of you, you know, listen to podcast sermons and you read your Bible on your own and you're involved in small group and Bible studies and, and please do, do those things. Those are great things. I'm not saying don't. But, but is it more like the water just sort of running off? And at the end of the day, you're like, I got a little bit wet from my study of God's word, but I don't know that anything's really sunk down deep enough to actually transform me and so that I can be a vessel of living water to other people. That doesn't often happen. And I fear for us and our church, and there's nothing about particular about fellowship that gives me this fear. I think this is true for the church in general at this point in Christian history. I fear that we're more like a rock than a sponge. Now, why is that? There's a lot of reasons. We all have busy lives. We all have different things going on. Our culture certainly wants to sort of squeeze out any receptivity to the truth of Scripture that they possibly can. There's a lot of reasons for it. I don't want to go into those this morning. I want to go into how we can move beyond it. Like, how could our hearts be transformed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh is the image the Scripture uses in the Old Testament. Now, there are three ideas, three lessons from this text that I want to give you by way of application as we begin to wrap up. And, and I, I, my hope is that you will be open, that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and your, so, your hearts would begin to be softened as you mature in your faith. I think that's the point of this passage. So here are the three lessons. Number one, Jesus is actively guiding the growth of his disciples and his goal is always a receptive heart. Here's what I mean by this. Did you notice how Jesus was in complete control of every step of their training? As disciples of Jesus, you usually don't get to choose your own curriculum. God chooses that for you. So he brings something hard into your life. He brings someone in your life a good circumstance, a negative circumstance. He asks you to do something. He puts you in situations that are beyond your resources. Why does he do all this? 
This is what he did for his disciples. Does he love you any less? He does not. What's his goal in all this? So that you'd learn more theology and more doctrine and be a smarter, more intellectual Christian? I think not. Now, he uses theology. He uses doctrine. I love those things. I spent a lot of years of my life studying those things. But why does he teach us doctrine and theology and things about ourselves? Is it not so that that would be married with receptivity and that we would be transformed and that we would start actually applying our theology into our family lives, into our workspaces, into our neighborhoods? See, we've got to be more like sponges than rocks. Now, this happens on God's initiative. And I'm not saying that you don't do anything, that you don't have a role in it, but what I am saying is there's a paradigm shift here. You don't get to control your own schooling when it comes to discipleship. We have this idea that whether or not you're a good disciple or a bad disciple is 100% tied to how often you read your Bible, how often you pray, and if you're in a Bible study or small group. What I'm saying to you is, Don't not do those things. (laughs) I want to encourage you to do those things. But understand that more than anything else, it's God that's controlling your growth. Here's what I mean by that. When you sign on to be a disciple of Jesus and you commit your life to Christ as a disciple, you're not only taking him on as your savior, he's taking you on as his disciple. He will not let you fail the course ultimately he will bring you through and he'll be growing you and developing you. And I think you can control somewhat the pace of your growth, but don't underestimate God's part in your discipleship. I think ultimately scripture would say it's only God that could soften our hearts, but we can ask him. And we'll get to that in a minute. That's lesson number one. Jesus is actively guiding your your growth. His goal is your receptive heart. Lesson number two, the two primary tools Jesus uses to soften our hearts. Ready for this? Two main tools Jesus uses to soften our hearts. Failure and grace. I don't like the first one. I love the second one. Can you have the second one without the first one? They're sort of two sides of a coin, right? And so what you see in the disciples' lives is they're gonna fail in big ways. Notice Jesus allows them to fail. Can I summarize the rest of the Gospel of Mark for you from the disciples' perspective? Good thing or two, failure, grace. Good thing or two, failure, grace. Failure, grace, failure, grace. It gets to the climactic moment. Jesus is on the cross. Where are the disciples? They've deserted him. Failure, We think the story ends in failure. Not so fast, my friend. Resurrection, grace, forgiveness, healing, reconciliation. That ultimate failure grace moment is what propels the disciples finally to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Their hearts are softened. The gospel is then carried through them as sponges, you see. Failure And grace is what God uses to transform us. Now, this shifts another paradigm. Here's why this is such good news. Your mess-ups, your floundering, your missteps, your disobedience, your lack of discipline, if you receive grace on the other side of that, can be a step forward in your growth rather than a barrier to your growth. But you've got to receive grace. You gotta go to God and you gotta say, God, I'm a mess. I failed yet again. How could I possibly 
argue and worry about bread when I just saw you do this miracle? Would you give me grace? He will always say yes to that question. Failure in grace will propel you along. That's lesson number two. And then finally, lesson number three, Jesus always responds to our cries for help. And I'll just do this one briefly. You may have noticed in your program, the text goes all the way through verse 56. So far, we've only covered 52. Don't worry, this is not gonna be a 80-minute sermon. Let me just briefly read to you 53 to 56, and I'll tell you why this relates to this final lesson that he always responds to our cries for help. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land, or they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. I spent most of the week wondering how those verses relate to the hardened heart. And I thought about something. What if? What if the disciples had recognized their own hardened hearts as an ailment that could be cured? What if they'd gone to Jesus and they'd say, listen, I, I just saw you heal that broken bone. Does your healing power also extend to my insides? At this point in the narrative, the disciples didn't understand that there's more that ails us than what affects our bodies. Am I right? At this point in the narrative, they didn't understand that Jesus came for a lot more than just healing physical bodies. What if they'd said, Jesus, we need you to soften our hearts? What if we said that? I realized this week as I studied this passage, I've never in my life asked Jesus to give me a soft heart. I've asked him for a whole lot of other things. I've never asked him for that. Why not? I love in this text, as many as touched the fringe of his cloak were being cured. <laughs> That's all it takes. That's all it takes. How I'd like to close the service this morning is to pray for us, pray for you, pray for me, pray for our body at fellowship. And I wanna ask God a specific request that he would heal our hearts, that he would soften our hearts. And I know for some of you in the room, you're thinking, man, that'd take a miracle because I recognize my heart is so hard. Others of you in the room, you may think, I don't know that I need that prayer. Is your heart hard at all, at all? Why not ask God to soften it? Why not ask God to give us the kind of soil where the message of truth can be planted deep and will grow and multiply? Why not? Why not? Why can't that be true for fellowship? Why can't that be true for you? Have you ever asked him? I want to lead us and guide us in this prayer. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we stand before you and we're very humbled because we know that you have glorious power to do amazing things, walking on water, multiplying bread, healing people's bodies. 
And we dare to actually believe that you might interact with us in ways that would be similar to how you interacted with these men and women in the first century. And that's not just some crazy idea or dream. We get this from your word. We get this idea that we are yours through the the, the power of the word of the gospel. And so right now, on the basis of that idea, the basis of that truth that we have been adopted into your family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we now ask you to do something for us, something that would be to your glory, I believe. And that is that you would soften our hearts. And I pray for every single man and woman in this room, myself included, the parts of our hearts that are hard from bitterness, maybe a perspective that would have us think that you haven't come through for us or that you haven't shown up or maybe you're not even real to us. I pray that you would soften that. The men and women in this room, maybe they want to believe but they don't believe or they don't believe much or they're struggling with doubt in significant ways right now in their lives. That's a very real form of a hard heart. I pray, Father, that you give them receptivity to believe, that you give them the faith of a child that would just say, this is possible. I think this is true. Would you soften their hearts? For the men and women in this room, their their lives are just so busy, they're so full, and you know, they're not angry with you. They're not necessarily really struggling with doubt right now. There's just a lot going on. It feels like their hearts are full of so many other things, and they're realizing now that maybe they've become a little bit hardened toward you and what you'd want to teach them and grow them and what you'd want to do through them. Would you soften their hearts? And for everybody else that in any way, shape, or form has a need to be more open and receptive to your word and the truth that is Jesus Christ, would you soften their hearts? Would you give them faith to believe? Would you help them, Lord? Would they cry out to you and just sort of metaphorically touch the fringe of your cloak because we know that you will heal as many as who touch it. So this is my prayer and confidence for this body. In the great name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.